Welcome to We Fight For That from the Public Interest Advocacy Centre. My name is John Lawford and I'm the Executive Director and General Counsel at PIAC. If you want lower cell phone bills, if you want a refund from a flight you couldn't take, or if you want to be treated better by your bank, we fight for that. Time for another round of consumer protection. Welcome to We Fight For That, episode 18. And today we have a very special guest, Jeff White, the Executive Director and General Counsel at the Canadian Network Operators of Canada, or CNOC. And uh, Jeff, thanks for coming on. I'm really happy to be here, John. And Jeff's uh, been uh, kind enough to come on today to discuss part of what we're going to be looking at over the next few shows, which is some difficulties with the CRTC that that people who go to the CRC frequently, such as telecom providers like Jeff CNOC members and and uh, PIAC experience. And our first topic is going to be a bit about delays at the commission. But first, I wanted to um, to get a few things out there and, and, and welcome you, Jeff, in a little bit more detail. Um, maybe you could give us a sort of a pricey of your career in telecom and uh, what brought you to CNOC today. Absolutely. So uh, as you mentioned, I'm the executive director, general counsel of an industry association called the Competitive Network Operators of Canada, which I will refer to as CNOC. We're an industry association that is the voice of Canada's independent communication service providers. And we represent uh, at the moment approximately 30 smaller telecom and broadcasting distribution providers. So we're talking about telephone, internet, TV services, and we advocate for public policy outcomes that recognize the important role that the smaller players and in particular service-based competitors play in acting as a check on the market power of Canada's dominant service providers. In terms of me, I've spent uh, the better part of the last 12 years or entirely the last 12 years as a communications regulatory lawyer, uh, and the better part of it, advocating for smaller interests uh, against more powerful interests. I started my career as a regulatory lawyer for uh, an incumbent telecom service provider. I spent approximately three or four years as external counsel to PIAC, involved in a a number of large framework proceedings before the commission and and some complaints that PIAC had made before the regulator. I then was in charge of the regulatory department at the uh, CRTC-appointed ombudsman for for complaints called the Commission for Complaints for Telecom Television Services, Inc. I've been an advisor to the government-appointed expert panel called the Broadcasting and Telecom Legislative Review Panel, where I was was seconded to that panel uh, in the last couple of months of its Mm -hmm. mandate as it was deliberating on its uh, recommendations for legislative reform. And I currently sit on the board of the CCTS as the smaller service provider appointed director. And for just under two years now, I've been the uh, executive director at CNOC. And so largely what I've been doing has been, as I say, advocating for less powerful interests before the regulator, it's often the case that I've been outnumbered, representing clients that are outnumbered, out resources in every which way. And that has uh, led to some interesting uh, experiences, I would say, and, and insights in terms of how that process 
is designed and how that process may or may not favor certain players. Yeah, exactly. Well, you've seen you've seen uh, things from quite a few angles on. I'll call it the mostly non-incumbent side, although you have that experience with a larger provider that I think no longer exists in its own guise anymore. But um, that that perspective is um, valuable because I think sometimes people hear complaints from uh, consumer groups, uh, individuals who go to CRTC uh, to try to fix a telecom issue, either internet or cell phone, and they either bewildered by the process or they uh, are just grumpy because they say they, uh, like we say, we often seem to come away with almost nothing for consumers and uh, even our wins, like the paper billing um, work we did with National Pensioners Federation ends up in a very very partial kind of win. And uh, I think a lot of people think we're just sour grapes. But um, as you said, working with CNOC members, uh, at least on the telecom side, you're dealing with um, issues uh, and seeing other barriers, I think, for smaller commercial providers. Um, and I like to feel that whenever I speak to you, the experiences that we have uh, that are frustrating with let's call it telecom regulation and the regulator seem to line up. Uh, and I know the recent battles that smaller internet providers have had with the CRTC, we've had on Matt Stein, for example, to explain what wholesale is. And Andy kaplan Mirth from Tech Savvy uh, came on to follow up and discuss the uh, brouhaha over the, uh, you know, the rates decision on uh, wholesale internet back in 20, uh, 2021, I guess, when the decision was reversed from 2019. Um, so, so people know uh, that that exists, but you, you've got that experience and you've also done some consumer work and some redress work. So I'm, I'm very pleased to have you come on and tell the people. Um, but what really sparked today's meeting, I think, was a letter that you sent kind of as a follow-up to a previous um, complaint. Um, but this one was sent... Um, on the 18th of March to Ian Scott directly, who's the chair of the CRTC. And I was wondering if you could take me through that letter because it, it discusses a couple things. I'm most interested in the, uh, in the delay question, but what was the, what was the purpose of sending that letter and, and what kind of reception has it had? Absolutely. I don't mean to delay the discussion about delay, but I think what we're talking about is, is, process and procedure at, mm -hmm. at the CRTC. And why is that important? That's important because that affects the output of, of the CRTC. And let's not forget the CRTC, as I, as, as I argue, is one of Canada's most important institutions. And why is that? Well, it oversees the way we communicate, our cell phones, our home internet access, what mm -hmm. the, the, the content we consume, et cetera. And of course, the price we pay for it and the rights consumers have as well. And all of those are hugely important, uh, no matter the pandemic or with what's happening in the economy. These are vitally important, as we all know. These are essential services. And it's important that we get our, uh, our policy right. And the CRTC is in charge of implementing those policies. So that's hugely important. When it comes to delay, the, the old legal maxim, which our, our federal courts frequently cite, is that justice delayed is justice denied. And what we've experienced and observed at CNOC, and I've observed in, in other capacities as well, is that uh, under the current leadership, 
at the CRTC. And leadership's an important piece of the, the overall institutional picture at the CRTC in terms of who's in charge, what their role is, and their level of accountability. And we can talk about that. But over a year ago, uh, Matt Campbell, who works with the Internet Society, posted a blog post called titled Regulation at Sloth-like Speed, in which mm-hmm. uh, Mr. Gamble had, had noted that the CRTC had its own service standard of dealing with applications before it um, and, and issuing a decision within four months of the close of the record of the proceeding. And Mr. Gamble had observed that standard had been not met numerous times. And we've done our own research at CNOC as well in terms of broadcasting files and telecom files. And of course, we care more about the files and applications that we've initiated. But there are some huge proceedings that the commission itself has initiated that that will dictate the future of competition in Canada. And the record of these files has been closed in, in some cases a year and in other in other cases as well two years that the commission has been sitting on uh, very important files some of which from CNOC's perspective are urgent applications and we've, we've asked for urgent relief in terms of being able to uh, have wholesale access to fiber to the home uh, that's that's at least a year old and another problem with that delay in addition to it causing uncertainty is that the commission won't indicate when it will issue decisions. There's no timeline. And that's unusual in the sense that it it seems to be the only institution where there is no transparency or accountability in terms of decisions. Even the Supreme Court of Canada says on its website that decisions on on leave applications, for example, will be provided on average within three months. And they tend to stick to that. There's transparency and certainty in terms of when decisions come out from other tribunals, but when it comes down to the the commission, at least under its current leader, there is no roadmap for when a backlog of numerous files uh, will be decided. That's problematic. That, That creates uncertainty for all stakeholders. Uh, that are trying to invest and trying to compete, trying to understand what the rules will be, trying to understand when to get ready to react to a decision. To me, it it raises questions about the effectiveness of the actual leadership at the CRTC as well. Yeah. The justice delayed, justice denied trope, it is a principle. uh, And uh, I'm glad it's there because it also applies in things like immigration proceedings or criminal proceedings and, and all sorts of things that matter that to individuals that people might be more familiar with. But I often ask myself, why is that? And the best answer I've come along to since in thinking about it is because it favors the people with power. In other words, people with power can wait something out. Incumbents who have a, uh, a lot of business and don't want to face competition are comfortable with the present rule, the, the longer you can't, you, you can't change anything or nothing changes, the better they do. Same thing with the state. So if the state is holding you um, for your immigration hearing and just keeps holding you, you know, there's no interest in moving things along if you are in a powerful position. And that's, that's why delay also really bothers us. Um, we have lots of examples as well. I mean, PIAC has participated recently in the CBC license hearing on the broadcasting side. And uh, if I recall, it was finished in March of 2021. And well, so we're past a year waiting for a license renewal of Canada's major 
well, only national public broadcaster. So it's not like they're operating without a license, but they have an administrative extension. Um, and during this time, they're just kind of doing what they want because they haven't been told by the CRTC what their conditions are. So that's that's just one example from our side, but there are many, many more. And uh, we've been looking into this too. And uh, Conrad von Finkenstein, who was the chair, uh, two chairs prior to uh, Mr. Scott, um, did set in those service standards of four months. But to my knowledge, it kind of started to be not observed a little bit by uh, Jean-Pierre Blais, but then really this, you know, this present commission led by uh, Mr. Scott has really had all, all pretenses of keeping to any kind of schedule for releasing decisions fall away. And it's not just during the pandemic. So with your, with your indulgence, Jeff, um, I'll just also cite some research done by Monica Auer, who sits on our board, but has her own organization, uh, Forum for Research in Policy and Communications. And her study shows that during the first two years of each term of each of the, uh, of each of the chairs, that's Conrad von Finkenstein, Jean-Pierre Blais, and then Ian Scott, if you compare the first two years of their terms, none of which included a pandemic, so the third and fourth or fourth and fifth years of Mr. Scott is in the pandemic, but the other ones, uh, we were comparing apples to apples here. Um, the, the delay for both the length of proceedings from the time they start to the time they close the record, and then from the time the record's closed till the decision comes out is just lengthening, lengthening and lengthening. And, um, and I, I'm trying mightily to figure out why that is. Do you have any theories on why the delay or maybe you want to go into your letter and then give me your theory as to what's happening here due to the lack of transparency it's very difficult for for an outsider to actually understand what's going on um i believe mr scott it was was asked questions before the industry committee uh, a number of weeks ago about what has been taking so long and mr scott effectively said well we're no slower than any other agencies which i which i disagree with it's not true uh, uh, well you, you've said it and the other the other uh comment that has been made several times is that these decisions take a long time and we will release our decision when it's ready but there's no forecast for when such decisions will be ready and i don't i don't know a single other line of work where you can simply say to your effectively to your boss well you know, where's this project? It, it'll be ready when it's ready. There is no yeah. forecast. And when I try to call up a, a commission staff for, with a simple question to say, we filed an emergency application for fiber resale, what is the status of it? And the answer is we're not in a position to, to tell you. Uh, whether even, even if the file has been opened, let alone analyzed and assessed and brought forward for deliberation. And that that is really concerning. So that's why we wrote our letter. And let me just put some, some substance behind our letter asking for the commission to deal Please. with the delay. There are a number of files that, that are particular to, to CNOC, but I think are also relevant to, to Canadian consumers in the sense that for years, Canada has believed in a model where smaller independent telecom providers can, can buy a wholesale access to, to the network infrastructure of the larger players and compete against them using their own network infrastructure. I understand that's been the subject of uh, various uh, other podcasts. Well, I won't go into that there, but that framework has been under assault for a number of years. And as a deliberate matter of fact, the CRTC has been trying to transition from the way the pieces of the networks that, that 
smaller players are allowed to purchase. The incentive for changing that is so that we will go from this aggregated model to this disaggregated model. The long story short is that once that transition is complete, smaller players will be able to have wholesale access to the fiber, fiber to the home of the bigger players. That's hugely important to compete. Why is that? Because the speeds? Because of the speeds, exactly. The capacity and the speeds, precisely. And uh, it's becoming untenable for smaller competitors to compete uh, against those who are offering fiber. Let's leave that aside for a moment, only to say uh, that other model, which the consultations began in 2021, is there's no end in sight to, to, to that proceeding in terms of when a decision might be made. And then there's a number of other follow-up proceedings that need to be made. So it, so what we're seeing here, just like with this delay, is that we're seeing uh, the delay favoring the large incumbents because they're they're having a considerable head start in terms of being able to to maximize their their share of the market and to hold on to it. And it's a it's it's a great example of how. Uh, delay does favor the large. Another, I'll just give you one more, another file that we're waiting for a decision on, and it's, it could be disastrous uh, from a competition perspective, is a 2020 consultation initiated by the CRTC to consider whether or not to continue using a cost-based uh, economic methodology for determining the, the rates the smaller players pay the big players, mm-hmm. or to move over to two or three different alternatives, but the main alternative that gained a lot of traction and which the commission put on the table was commercial negotiation, backstopped by an, by arbitration. If that comes comes to the front and the, the incumbents really want us to go over to commercial negotiation, if that if that happens, if that decision happens and it is and the commission steps away from its role of setting rates and leaving it to, to market forces, well, the smaller competitors are, are, are dead. It, it's that drastic a decision. And yet we have no insight as to when that decision might drop. Uh, will it be in the next two weeks? Will it be in the next two years? Lastly, the CRTC always uh, has a three-year plan, which it updates annually, uh, where it reports on what its planned activities are. Yep. We're supposed to have reviewed the, the overarching framework for this wholesale competitive access. And that's, um, that's been delayed, understandably, with the pandemic. But we seem to be moving past the pandemic in, in one way or another. And nevertheless, the entire world has adapted to pandemic life. Yep. Uh, and there's no update as to when the CRTC, there's no work plan that that my members can look at or and their investors can look at and say, okay, this is what's going to be happening. This is when that decision may be released and plan accordingly. And that instability, again, favors the favors the incumbents who, who are obviously a lot larger and have the capacity to sit that out. But the the advantage they have, the incumbency advantage is is huge. And it it all of this goes to a system that isn't delivering on the mandate that the CRTC has, which is to deliver uh, an environment that responds to the social and economic needs of users. And that's hugely important. And ultimately, in in my view, and I'm sorry to be long-winded about that, that goes to the competence of the CRTC. And that goes to the competence of the leader, who's not just the commissioner, that's the chief executive officer as well. It's a dual role. Mm. Yeah. Well, the CRTC is certainly 
made itself into not only a regulator that's a quasi-judicial tribunal where they kind of act like a court, but also into a sectoral regulator where they kind of give the industry guidance, lots of, uh, lots of uh, policy statements and, uh, and uh, yeah, I'll say regulatory signals to, um, to investors, to companies so that they can, they can plan. And if they're not, if they're not being clear, then honestly, all parties stall, or if they're larger, they go ahead and, 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 work on those places where they feel they have an advantage. And I'll just go back to, again, I'll go back to my paper bills decision. This is uh, this came out of a, an initial part one application, which some people are familiar with, where you file a quick note into the CRTC and say, there's a problem here. Can you look at it? And the timeline for these is supposed to be sort of within a month, month and a half. Uh, they can be done. And the idea is to bring up something that's a problem. So we noticed TELUS was changing its Kudo brand from giving paper bills for its wireless Kudo phones to no paper bills without asking, just doing it. So we said, hey, we think that violates the rules. Quite a long time before the CRTC decided that particular part one application, I think it was over a year uh, and maybe even 18 months. And then um, we were unhappy with the outcome, which was, no, they can do that. And we thought that was incorrect, but they did issue an immediate sort of formal consultation, notice of consultation, it's called. And that one, <laughs> that one went for almost two years. The trouble being that the idea behind our initial application was file it against TELUS, get a quick answer, yes or no, Right. And um, I guess we're somewhat to blame in um, saying we didn't like the answer and doing it over again. But how can you take over a year to to give that answer to a simple question? Like, can people get paper bills or is it okay for them to, to wipe it out without that right? And the whole point, the whole point of the part one procedure is you get a quick answer and then the industry knows what the rule is, right? <laughs> um, and instead it turned into a basically a five-year saga where I believe no one is happy because now it's just seniors and people with disabilities and those who don't have home internet and therefore can't print their bills uh, who get paper bills if only if they ask, which makes us unhappy. It's not a big enough group. It makes the companies unhappy because for five years they've been phasing out during these five years, they've been phasing out paper billing, right? So they've probably canceled all of their paper billing contracts with their printers. Uh, they no longer have systems in place to route certain customers' bills and invoices to paper printing. They have nothing in their customer service uh, scripts to help people get back on paper billing or off paper billing. You know what I mean? So disaster, total disaster. Sure, it's a disaster in a teacup, you might say, but no, because if I got an answer six months or even three months after, or the four months, which was Conrad's initial vision on my first application. And then even if I went back and said, well, I don't think it's right. And we'd been done in a year, year and a half, maybe all of those changes wouldn't have happened. In other words, the company's changed. It's all over. There's no way we could have ever gone back to paper billing for everyone because the issue had moved on by then. So that's my story. Well, these are these are questions. These really are they're questions about process and process impact substance. And this goes to the competence 
uh, or capacity of the CRTC. And that goes as well to its credibility. And that ultimately needs to lie at the feet of the CEO, which is also the commissioner, in terms of the, the CEO's ability to run an organization that is able to deliver on its mandate. There are numerous examples of small wireless code interpretations as well. And, it, and I should note, it's not like the CRTC does not have staff. It has a tremendous staff. And when it comes to legal staff, I last time I checked, I think there, there are at least 20 lawyers on staff there. Yeah, they've well. got one of the biggest legal departments and regulators in Ottawa, right? I didn't know that. And, and that, that in and of itself is interesting to say, well, surely they ought to be able to have confidence in their ability to deliver um opinions about their own about their own mandate and, and understand their own mandate but it also perhaps is telling of, of perhaps there's a culture of uh, of uh, of over lawyering or 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 over analysis that's happening but if it takes months or or years to have a decision on something simple you can imagine what's happening with these larger files that are that are framework files i call them that that are govern the entire industry, like the wholesale access question is a framework uh, issue, and it's very technical, it's very complicated. Um, and, and there are issues, delay is not just, it's, it's not solely uh, uh, the CRTC and the CEO's problem. There are ways to delay the system and to, to bring about delay as uh, as an actor as well. And that, that certainly was the case in terms of the the what happened with the wholesale rates and, and the the ability within within the law to to triple appeal, go to cabinet, go back to the CRTC and go to federal court of appeal, which also delays things. And I, I suspect also could make a, a, a CRTC chairperson more conservative in, in their willingness to uh, take a stand on any particular file. Yeah, well, let's dig into that just for a second, because as I recall, you and I wrote a paper on this. <laughs> <laughs> Some years ago, about all of the appeal routes from telecom decisions, it was not broadcasting, all the appeal routes from telecom. And we said, what is this with being able to do a review and vary at the commission to say, are you sure? Also being able to go to cabinet directly for a political decision in a petition to cabinet, also go to the federal court of appeal. And that's the triple threat you were talking about. In other words, you get three kicks at the can to change something. You can do them in sequence. And there may be appeals from the appeal because appeals from CRTC decisions to the courts go to federal court of appeal. And then if someone has the money and time and doesn't like it, they can go to the Supreme Court of Canada. So you've got at least two levels of very heavy hitting court to go through. And you've got petitions to cabinet where the government has up to one year to decide whether to reverse something politically. And sometimes the outcome of those petitions is just to send it back to the CRTC with a note, which might be confusing or not. And we can get into that if you like saying do it again right like i understand that telecom is political and so is broadcasting in particular and that all of these appeal routes and various i guess belt and suspenders safeguards you know ways for decisions to be changed are there to make sure that the decisions that are politically sensitive get made properly but it's too much like, do you not think that that's too much because i feel like the commission and i hear i'm going to speculate because i don't work there in my most charitable days, I believe that Mr. Scott, the commissioners and the staff are paralyzed with fear of going to court or having yet again their decision be the subject of something that those people who run the country have to deal with. I mean, cabinet. And they are trying their damnedest to 
not make decisions because then you don't get criticized for the decision you made and trying very hard to um, appeal proof any decisions they do make. So now when the decisions come out, and this is my other pet peeve, they're written in such milk toast, watery soup way that there's nothing for you to like appeal because they never say anything in the decisions. And it's all couched in very generalist language, horrifying things to read. Um, don't take a clear stand. So even if you do get the decision, you're like, well, what is this? Right. You know, like it's just that to me that maybe in on my most charitable days, they're just scared. Perhaps I don't know. I, but what's the other? The other interpretation is something darker, which is regulatory capture, favoring the incumbents, and believing that there's a vision of telecom policy which the commission has somehow in their bones, which has not been a government policy with a clear policy statement, but they've just kind of vibed it. And they think we know best. And as a sectoral regulator, we're going to kind of make it up as we go along. That's the darker version. I, I, unless there's a third. We can theorize and speculate all day long. And I should say, I, I also teach the subject. I taught it for three years in a row at, uh, at the University of Ottawa's Faculty of Law. I think what we're talking about fundamentally, the, the most constructive way we can talk about this issue and i would love i i love this issue it's my it's it's my passion within this field is institutional reform clearly what's happening is the architecture that is used to to govern the regulation of communications in canada is out of date and not up to the task that's also important because we're looking at expanding the CRTC's mandate. And we're talking about the potentially regulating mm -hmm. online content and foreign streaming yeah. and unlawful and illegal content, et cetera. And so if we're struggling today, or the CRTC appears to be struggling today to do its job on time or issue decisions on time, forget the quality of those decisions, that raises bigger questions into the future about whether or not this is even the right home for, for those types of regulatory activities. But let me just say this. I often look to Ofcom. That's the Office of Communications in, in the United Kingdom. It's, it's our version of the CRTC. Uh, their Communications Act is, is a, to me, a, a model of, of where we should be looking for inspiration in addition to, to the, beat, the, the Legislative Review Panel's final report, because there were tons of recommendations in there for institutional reform. But when you, you open up the Communications Act in the UK, Section 8, I mean, literally within the first 10 sections, you see very clearly duty to publish and meet promptness standards. Hmm. We don't have such a thing in our, in our law right now. So, and so therefore, we have a commission that is really it, it talk, we talk about it being a uh, an independent quasi-judicial tribunal, and then there's this political safety valve with the way of a petition, et cetera. But there is no accountability. Fundamentally, that's that's my opinion, is that there is limited accountability at the CRTC in terms of it being able to be accountable to to cabinet uh, and to, to the public. To the public, right, exactly. In terms of uh, us holding the chair slash CEO to their mandate. And I also, uh, you know, and we can go off in different directions on this. We talk about ethics and, and conflicts of interest and regulatory capture. But in the UK, they also have a commissioner of public appointments, which actually oversees the, uh, is, is heavily involved in the appointment of chairpersons of important tribunals. We don't have that in Canada. We have um, a very opaque process, and I've had a, a, 
the law intern write a paper on this in terms of how is the actual CRTC chair slash CEO appointed? And it's very opaque. There have been numerous calls for reforms over the years, but as we understand it today, this is largely driven uh, politically from within the prime minister's office, and and therefore there is the risk that you end up with um, a patronage appointment and with a with a chair who uh, is incompetent. And uh, sure, you recall, but when Ian Scott was first appointed, there were a lot of uh, concerns expressed due to his uh, close, you know, he was formerly with two different incumbent service providers, and that caused a lot of concern. And so as we think about the future and institutional reform, I think the next most important thing to do is to make sure that we avoid the mistake of the last appointment and we put in to the CRTC a, a, a competent chair. Sure, that will help. I think you kind of hit it also nail on the head in the terms of the lack of accountability or oversight of the CRTC. Uh, they're nominally um, responsible to the Minister of Heritage, um, and that's who n- nominally also makes the um, appointment recommendation, I believe, to Cabinet. Um, Correct. The, but, it, but it's the Prime Minister's office ultimately oh yeah, that drives no, this. Yes. I'm not stupid. I live in this city. Like we know who makes decisions here. But um, the the point is, though, that until that recent industry committee meeting where Mr. Scott showed up to defend his record, only one meeting, by the way, I could not recall um, another instance. I guess the only other one being when um, Mr. Von Finkenstein had to go to um a a hearing um and i can't recall exactly what the issue was but this was back in the days of uh tony clement right and usage-based billing yes usage-based billing and that was the last time i can remember and i i believe at that time even he felt that it was out of out of the ordinary to have a parliamentary committee ask us you know a chair to come now i've seen an increasing trend in Canadian parliamentary practice to have the committees act more like the U.S. Commerce Committee and other committees in the United States where they ask like the FCC chair or the FTC chair to come and justify themselves every day. And to some extent, it's an over overkill. It's trying to threaten the, the regulatory agencies. We have different problems in the United States. But here in Canada, there's almost none of that. So I was quite intrigued to see Mr. Scott faced questions, but it was only one day. And so if, if there were more of that, um, would, would that not act as, as much of a check? Or I guess what you're saying maybe is that you need both a transparent and fair sort of appointments process where the persons coming in are good candidates. And then you need oversight as well from the political branch of this very key agency now. I do think we need more more oversight and transparency. Absolutely. I mean, the committee appearance was unusual, and and, and even the context of that was a, was opaque to us. But it, the committee testimony of the chair was highlighted to me what is it was what is part of this puzzle. How so? It, 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 it's well, it's the relationship. It's the relationship between the the regulator and the uh, government, uh, and it illustrated to me that there's somehow a massive disconnect between what the regulator thinks, what the minister has asked the regulator to do, and then what what the industry committee, which is backbenchers, think. At that committee, you heard 
regardless of political party, you heard widespread concern about the CRTC and, uh, and the chair and, and the appearance of uh, bias by having a pint with the second in command at Bell Canada in the midst of an open file. We have concerns from the industry committee about accessibility and affordability of telecommunications. And that's, that's cross party concern. That's not, this isn't a yeah, I noticed that. issue. And and that's, that's notable and notable pre NDP liberal uh, pact. It's <laughs> notable to see such, such unison on a parliamentary con- committee. Then we have the minister of industry who has very clearly told the CRTC to go out and act in the best interest of competition, consumers and, and affordability. And yet the CRTC seems to be completely out of touch with that, yet with that directive and out of touch with the concerns about the impropriety of having beers with Bell second in command, now CEO. Um, and it, it just leads me to, to wonder whether or not we do need to have some sort of a complaints mechanism as well. In Canada, we have an integrity commissioner and uh, I know there's been a complaint to the integrity commissioner about, about that conduct. Um, but in the UK, the, the appointments commissioner can also receive complaints uh, about it's the, the process to appoint the person in the first place is, uh, is a lot more squared away and nailed down and then you can make complaints about the process and appointees as you go and i think something like that would be necessary to address the the current situation that we've the current controversy that we've been through um but but wide spread sweeping institutional reform is necessary to the crtc itself in terms of its mandate simplifying its mandate and imposing upon it through law more affirmative duties to to conduct research, take into account research, consult with committees. You look at Ofcom, Ofcom has a series of standing committees that are uh, for different regions, for different um, interest groups within the community. And that, and the, the, the BTLR's recommendations contained a lot of recommendations that go to that in terms of making the CRTC more proactive and, and sort of reimagined for the future. And I think what we're talking about right now can't be solved by one or two little tinkering changes. Of course, if Jean-Pierre Blay had continued in that role, he was he was certainly more assertive and and uh, conscious of the appearance of of his organization, and did deliver some remarkable results under his connect, create, protect pillars. Um, if you've got the right leader in, the the rules don't matter as much. But when you have a leader who has led to so much criticism, um, it's important that the framework that governs his 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 uh, authority is very clearly strict, um, um, laid out. Right now, we're dealing with a very old Telecommunications Act and the CRTC Act, and it's, it's a bit of a mess. And then we have CRTC's rules of procedure, which in the CRTC's eye, allow it to sort of just casually turn away applications that are duly filed. Well, I was going to say, we're going to have a whole show on that as a follow-up to this one. So, uh, so yes, they do interpret their own rules as as sort of general guidelines. They're rolling through stop signs all the time on their own rules, but you know, I'll I'll get to that, but I I agree with you. We've had that experience probably worse than anyone, (laughs) but, but yeah, no, that to me, that's also a symptom of, yeah, an agency, like you say, that does not have a proper uh, framework for its, its, its function now that its function has changed from rate regulator, you know, with 
very narrow uh, decisions on on setting the rates for telecom services like most like telephone, local telephone or long distance. And now they do everything, as you say, and lined up in the bullpen are maybe, maybe not only uh, regulating all over the top broadcasting services that have anybody who watches them at all in Canada, but also, you know, potentially these uh, other bills, which we've heard talked about like online harms as they've put forth in the uk um and then there's the uh there's some question other as to whether other bits of other bills will be something that the telecom regulator or the broadcasting regulator should be involved with and in many other countries like the uk that is who's doing online harms and other such at least most of it and i i my my theory is that Lots of blah blah about digital commissioners and um, you know privacy extra layers of uh, review for the privacy commissioner. At some point, it will all collapse in on the telecom regulator, on the communications regulator, because that's its natural home. And and so CRTC will be getting more and more and more and more work. And if it's not fixed before they start getting this stuff piled onto it, I'm just afraid they're going to just collapse utterly, completely faceplant and it will be a disaster because there will be all of this new um, obligation on them. They'll be begging for more budget. They won't be able to get people up to speed. And if the appointment process, even if the appointment process puts someone in with the best qualifications and the best intentions, and even if, for example, they appoint the full complement of commissioners, which I think is 13 full-time and eight part-time right. or something, right. um, 21 people beavering away probably still couldn't save that sinking ship. I just, I feel like there's a, a freight train coming right at them and they better shunt off and fix themselves <laughs> um, because it's not going to end well. Now, maybe I'm being a little alarmist, but that the delays we're talking about for the, the bread and butter, normal stuff that we're doing without all this extra is... Is just one is one symptom of a, it seems to me to be a deeper rot. There's a rot, and I don't think, and it's 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 foundational. It's fundamental. It's it it goes to the statutes. It goes to what's in the laws that set out the mandate. And and again, I go back to Ofcom's. Uh, it's it's Consolidated Communications Act. Within the first twenty, I'm just gonna cherry pick a couple of sure. uh, uh, section headings out for you. And I think if we, if we could capture a couple of these here in Canada in legislative, in legislative reform, you would see the type of CRTC that is respond that, that can fulfill its mandate that does, doesn't delay, that doesn't run into ethical concerns and, and, and carries on. Um, and before I even go to that cherry picking, though, I do think it is interesting that the BTLR panel made a number of institutional reform recommendations on the telecom side and, and overall, uh, yet everybody seems so preoccupied with broadcasting regulation, and I can't quite make any sense of that. But let me give you a couple. And this is, sure. again, this is within the first, and I, I encourage listeners to check this out because it, this, is, this should be the model we look to closely. I already told you that Section 8, uh, talks about a duty to publish and meet prompt standards. Mm -hmm. There's a duty to carry out impact assessments in terms of what what uh, any regulatory activity would do. Mm. There is a uh, there sections 14 through 19 are functions for the protections of consumers, cons consumer research, a duty duty not a, an ability a duty to publish and take account of research, mm. duty to 
consult with consumers, a duty to stand up a consumer panel and to take input from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there's sections on advisory committees, et cetera. Now, if you had all of those here with, with under the current Telecom Act with all of its legacy things and problems, if you simply, if you could have um, more strict timelines and mandated consumer stakeholder interface uh, forums that perhaps there was a quarterly meeting, there would be more transparency. There would be a greater exchange of information outside of the uh, the writing of letters and things like that. There would be a lot better understanding of how the CRTC works. And I think it would go the other way. The, the CRTC would have a better understanding of what's all, what, what matters to the consumer groups and the smaller service providers, et cetera. Because mm-hmm. right now, all we are able to do is s- submit applications. Uh, if you pick up the phone to staff to try to find out the status of things, they won't tell you anything. So we really are restricted to this, this formalistic writing of things. And we do not have, the, the smaller players simply don't have the privileged access uh, and the connections to be, you know, or the friendships to, to even, to, 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 uh, to use Ian Scott's term, he's, he's friends with the CEO of Bell. We don't have that level of access. Therefore, we don't have that level of uh, understanding. And that's, that's to, to our detriment. So put it in law, stand up these consultative committees, um, get together, talk to one another, obviously on the record, and and that alone, and, and publish research, so up-to-date usable research, so that we, we can all come to the table with a shared set of, of metrics, and that alone would, would go a long way in solving some of the current problems. Hmm. Yeah, one of the things that's always shocked me is, and maybe this is unreasonable, but the CRTC has no idea what retail pricing is out there. I'm like, is that not kind of basic that you would know how much people are being charged in the market for say home internet in Toronto or wireless in Montreal? Wouldn't you want to kind of know that because their decisions um, have said, well, we're going to trust market forces to make sure that wireless is affordable and home internet wouldn't you want to kind of keep an eye on whether, you know, the market is actually delivering and the, you know, like that, that to me is, is just fundamental. And, you, you know, a cynical person could say, well, how come you consumer groups like PIAC don't, you know, keep track of it and hire somebody or make a database of your own or whatnot, or perhaps you could have one of these competitors like CNOC members or tech savvy do it. Um, nice try. That is expensive. and can be used in many ways by the CRT. They don't have to necessarily take that retail pricing information and immediately start, you know, regulating the rates of carriers. They could, they could probably find, well, what, what's with this differential, for example, between the North and the South of New Brunswick? What's, I'm not saying there is one, but if there were, or what's the difference between wireless service in Regina and Saskatoon? Why is it different? Um, you know, like they could do all sorts of crazy, interesting things with it. I feel like they do the minimum, and whenever they get criticized, they say, well, then they go into their little, well, we're a regulatory tribunal that's quasi-judicial shell. Don't, don't, don't pester us. And, but yet they, they do end up willingly or unwillingly the makers of policy and, and signaling to markets and to consumers what really goes on in home internet, wireless, TV, 
and even, you know, home phone service and other things. And now maybe what you're allowed to look at or talk about on all those things. Um, it's wild. It's like they've got to get out of jail free card because they just pretend they're a tribunal when they need to. And the rest of the time they act like they aren't. And it's frustrating. Absolutely. Um, they, they, they should uh, have that data. It should be, we, the general public and stakeholders should know what data they have. The reporting, which has been the subject of criticism for years and years now about the communication, the monitoring report and how it changes and how it's, it's not user-friendly um, and, and calls for, calls for more evidence from, from the regulator, it would simplify, it would just simplify um, the level, the playing field in terms of getting uh, facilitating PX ability to, to go to the table, but also, also the industry associated CNOC exists um, because even our, our combined force of, of, 30 independent service providers, we're still nothing next to the incumbents. And it, it must have cost us, uh, it costs us a lot to do our own research, but defending the the triple attack of uh, on wholesale rates where they went to cabinet, the RNB and back to the CRTC. I mean, that was that, that got cost us into uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that really, that really, uh, hinders our ability to to get things done. So if the CRTC could put out more research, that would be one way to to make things easier. And it's interesting that you mentioned the retail pricing because that's that is fundamental to the CRTC's mandate. It's foundational. Um, the, the the heart of of the Telecommunications Act. It really is about retail or, or, or just and reasonable rates, and a lot of that has been deregulated or the CRTC has stepped away from that. But if you look at the BTLR expert panel report, they call for a more proactive regulator. And then we've been talking about how the CRTC could be more proactive. Um, but when they talk about deregulation and forbearance, they've actually recommended that the CRTC have to justify and study markets to make sure that the deregulation still makes sense. Because I suspect that if we studied some of the markets that are of interest to uh, to Canadians, like Canadian wallets, uh, home internet and mobile pricing is, is hugely important, obviously. If we studied that, I question whether or not the case for forbearance would still exist in many cases, um, because because there it's an endless source of complaints, the affordability of, of these services, these essential services. And so if that BTLR recommendation in terms of the CRTC having to justify its deregulatory stance on any given market were adopted, that in and of itself would be huge as well. Yeah. Well, and even if... Uh... Even if the outcome of the research was not able to move the CRTC off of forbearance for whatever weird reason, um, and they didn't want to price regulate, the government could still use it. If it was a public document, we could still use it to agitate for political outcomes, right? Because we'd say, well, whether the market feels it's working, whether the regulator feels that prices are where they should be, the people don't actually, and I'm going to make it your problem, Government of Canada. And as I understand it, even with two groups getting together, um, we're, we're eventually going to have another election in this country. And at that time, this might be a big issue for you. So you might want to look at 
you know, the government has been sort of flip-flopping on whether they care about wireless pricing and, and home internet pricing because they seem to kind of suck and blow and do one thing and then counter it. But, you know, there's, there's certainly um, better argument for having one position or the other, if you've got some evidence and at the moment, nobody knows, <laughs> this is the thing. Well, that's right. And nobody knows. And so, so you can't make an argument. It's all just polemics and, and sort of j- japes and jibes on Twitter and that's getting us nowhere. Right. Well, I try not to, I try not to gauge in the Twitter because uh, I, I don't, I, I, I trust that the CRTC doesn't make decisions based on, on Twitter. No, I don't think that. they do. I don't but. think they do, but I think that's where the frustration is being funneled right now. And of course that's just a steam valve where, People can think they're being smart, but it doesn't actually change the world. So we're 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 with you in the sense that that structural change is needed, and um, it's unfortunate though the delay has has negative effects and more pronounced negative effects on smaller competitors, which is the folks you represent, and on consumers directly and consumer groups like ours who are trying to do stuff because along with the late decisions come late cost awards. <laughs> and right. as some people know, um, we are in a somewhat unique position because when we show up to argue against the big companies and for consumers, if we do a good job and help the commission, we get some of our costs covered um, from the companies to us. But you know, we are waiting uh, sometimes 10 months, 12 months after after a decision comes out to get our cost award. And it's been a little bit better lately, but if something has taken 18 months or you know, a year, two years, and then we have to wait a further year to be paid. If I said to most small businesses, um, you can charge uh, and you know, you'll probably get paid eventually for it, but it's going to be three years. I mean, they would laugh. <laughs> right. How can you run a business when you're going to get paid three years later? It's nuts, right? How can you run a, <laughs> run any business that is uh, within this regulated or quasi-regulated sphere without having any understanding of of when things will change and how they might change? And that goes to the transparency of the organization. Let's let's just do one last little thing to be a little bit fair to the CRTC on delays. How much? This is a sort of a lawyer's question. How much of a role do you think the Supreme Court's change of uh, judicial review standards in Vavilov has made to the CRTC? Because remember I said, I think maybe in part they're just scared. Um, And now with Vavilov, the standard of review for CRTC decisions, because they're all statutory appeals, is basically correctness. So in other words, they have to get it right. Uh, Do you think that's having having any role on them being a little bit extra careful in the last, say, two years? That that's right about Vavilov. I am so this problem. Uh, these overarching problems, I think, emerge pre-Vavilov. Now, certainly, okay. it, it probably takes has a role. But I, it, what I can say is that standard of review it was heavily uh, litigated uh, at the federal court of appeal when the incumbents challenged the CRTC's 2019 rates decision, mm-hmm. a rates decision that the CRTC would then totally reverse itself on um, after the fact. Mm-hmm. Standard of review was brought up. Um, the Federal Court of Appeal didn't uh, indulge or entertain the, or agree with the, the incumbent's arguments about standard of review. And then in the Federal Court of Appeal's unanimous decision dismissing the incumbent's appeal of the 2019 rates decision, the incumbents then tried to get leave to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada. And in that the incumbents 
urged the Supreme Court of Canada to take to take up their case to finish the unfinished business from Vavilov. And what I think is interesting about that is that standard review, which of course is an important piece of administrative law, but the incumbents seem to be trying to shift, use Vavilov, which was seen to be clarifying the the standard of law analysis. The incumbents tried to muddy the waters to try to take to to shift it again to their favor. And I think all of that is just a lot of costly, uh, costly time consuming lawyering. And we're glad that the Supreme court of Canada didn't grant leave in that case. Yeah. Well, that's what made the review and vary by the CRTC all the more shocking was basically if they had say, I, I believe they kind of stayed their review and vary proceedings to see what would happen with that. Is that right? Like really they got a free pass from the court, they could have said, okay, we're not going to, we're not going to change this because, you know, this, this level of court has looked at our original decision and said, it's fine. <laughs> so right. they could have turned around that day pretty much and said, well, we know you filed a review and very, uh, incumbents, but, um, we pretty much got a free pass from the court. So, uh, we're done here, but they didn't do that. They went through all the song and dance, and then they released this weird suspicious decision where somehow each incumbent found one problem that was was wrong and in total all of them added up to such a mess that they had to go back to some weird interim rate that wasn't even right at the time and like it it was it was stunning to me um that that whole reversal i went through that with andy a little bit but uh, and i don't want to rehash it completely here but you know what i mean like if you've got a court finally backing you up why wouldn't you as a regulator like just mic drop and walk away like we're done here court said we were right right i mean let, yeah and let's not rehash it because i know that's been the subject of another uh, another discussion or maybe future discussions but it is important because we talked about the triple the triple whammy uh, appeal route that the that that exists within the legislation um and that that is problematic the btlr noted that it's unusual that uh in other comparative jurisdictions it's unusual that the cabinet has both the power to issue binding policy directions and has the ability to um intervene right um and but in canada we seem to have both we say and i say the appeal to cabinet still serves an important purpose to the extent that uh it's a safety valve if you think and you can make the case that the CRTC is totally out of line with government policy, which I argue it is. Um, but it, but that's a double-edged sword because when we were talking about wholesale rates, um, it took an entire year to the, to the day that the, the cabinet issued its decision on the incumbent appeals to cabinet on the, on the very la- at the very last moment. I think it was a Saturday. Um, they issued a non-decision, but in the non-decision saying, well, we're, we're, we're not touching this, in the preamble, the the legally inoperative section of the of their decision to do nothing, they made some curious comments about uh, about how the rates don't, in some cases, you know, balance the investment objectives. Now, I know some have argued that that's the system working as it ought to, but in my view, that's not the way the system ought to work. And if that were the case, how would it take an entire year of delay? for the cabinet to reach the opinion to not do anything and to create a subtle little signal to the CRTC to relook at the rates. And then for the chair of the CRTC, which says it's independent, to then go on and say, well, we weren't influenced by cabinet at all. I mean, that that's all a bit 
that's a bit of a stretch as far as as I'm concerned. And again, it just goes to the need to reboot our communications legislation in Canada. Yeah, so there's not this weird either no guidance and sort of in indirect discretion or actual discretion in the regulator or the or I'll call them the super regulator at the cabinet level. There's too much wiggle room. There's too much wiggle room and wiggle room favors those who uh, are in a dominant position. And, um, and that's, that's, that's my bottom line is that this thing needs a looking at. And, and if we're going to give CRT yet more power, more things to look after, oh boy, you know, um, it's not just telecom lawyers like us who are going to be noticing this strange, imperious non-action at the regulator. It's going to be regular people. <laughs> um, you know, and if I go back to online harms, if they do give them a slice to look after instead of some digital services agency or whatever there is in the original thinking, yeah, then people might be mad about whether they get their, their posts removed or not removed. And then Perhaps they'll file appeals through CRTC's new whatever it is, and they're going to start being angry when it goes to be two years to get their decision. <laughs> you know, I just that's right. It's going to affect it's going to affect people more directly, is what I'm saying. But right now, it indirectly affects people with their pricing, whether they know it or not. And in future, it might be more in their face. Well, look, listen, we've we've talked about this one um, uh, for a long while now. But uh, I think we've covered most of the waterfront. There's probably more we could talk about in, in terms of wrinkles on, on this. And you've raised a couple of things that we're going to follow up uh, in other shows on because I do have, I do have uh, you know, the procedural strangeness and, and, um, and the regulatory capture argument further down the line. But uh, I want to thank you, Jeff, very much for bringing us your perspective, both from your own lawyering point of view and from your organization's point of view on this. It's not something that, maybe it's terribly exciting, but it is important. And, um, and that's great. So, so thanks so much for coming on. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to uh, let people know about CNOC or um, what you guys are doing, say, in, in publicly on this or anything else that you're allowed to say? <laughs> the floor is yours. I just want to thank you, John, and I want to thank PIAC for its ongoing work. This has been a great discussion. You talked about what the CRTC is doing may indirectly impact Canadians. And I know what you meant by that, but I would like to say it's it's direct. What's happening right now with the competence and credibility issues at the CRTC is going to impact this delay that we've been facing, this uncertainty. This is going to hurt Canadian consumers, ultimately. The smaller service providers are suffering very badly as a result of this delay. We're facing the prospect of a Roger Shaw transaction out west. Mm-hmm. And as smaller players start dropping off, one of our members, one of our biggest members, Ebox, was recently purchased by Bell. I saw that. As that happens, with each competitor you take out of the market, you take out the competitive discipline on the incumbents in terms of their pricing and on their customer service and the respect for the customer. So uh, I, I just want listeners to understand that the smaller competitors are the quickest, easiest uh, fix for high pricing and terrible customer service. And that's all at risk now as a result of the delays and other issues we've been talking about today. Wow. Okay. Well, that's uh, well said. And uh, my brain's a little foggy because I'm coming out of three weeks of being COVID. And uh, (laughs) so I'm not as sharp, but, uh, but thanks. Also, this is 
sort of existential to your business. So thanks, Jeff, for putting that so clearly. I'll uh, also be telling our, our listeners that, as I said, we will be doing other follow-ups to this conversation, one on, yeah, the CRTC's own uh, procedural rules, not how quickly they get decisions out, but whether they'll take them at all, whether they'll take complaints at all. Again, regulatory capture and what that means. Um, some other concerns that we have with the future, but it all really is linked back, as Jeff said, to the, the solution will probably be to treating the CRTC as a modern regulatory agency that just needs a needs a rethinking and, and some attention by Parliament. So thanks again, Jeff, and everyone who's listening. And we will be back uh, actually in two weeks time with our uh, somewhat delayed discussion of cryptocurrency uh, and uh, and what consumers should watch out for in that area. So once again, thanks everybody and bye for now. Thanks for listening to this episode of We Fight For That. The Public Interest Advocacy Centre needs your help to keep making this show and to keep fighting for you. I'm John Lawford. See you next time for another round of consumer protection. 